Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer? No. Why not? I'm afraid. A demonic spirit possesses a young girl, and only two Catholic priests can save her. Listen as we discuss the shittiest operating rooms in Brooklyn, the grossest thing in the human centipede, and the funniest thing Diane Weist has ever said. The power of Christ compels you to find out if the exorcist stands the test of time. Time, James and Alan have to say, do the movies you love still hold up today? James says, gladiator with the blood, Alan says, as a father, blah, blah. It's the test of time, James and Alan have to say, do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time, James and Alan have to say, do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a spooktacular episode of The Test of Time. Oh, we've got ghosts here. I'm Alan Noah, and I am joined, as always, by you, James Brief. James Brief. Ooh, scary. That's right. It's the third of three of our Halloween spooktacular trilogy of horror films. We started uh, two weeks ago with with a film from the 90s when we reviewed I Know What You Did Last Summer. Uh-huh. Then we reviewed a film from the 80s, uh, The Fly, right. itself a remake of a 1950s film. Correct. And today we're doing a 1970s film, uh, The Exorcist, which has been remade, well, not remade, but has had 18 million sequels in pretty much every decade right right and the the new one that just came out earlier this month at first i didn't even know that there was a new exorcist movie otherwise we maybe would have uh switched the order that we did these uh episodes also i wasn't really sure that it was a sequel to the original exorcist because there's a lot of other movies out there that have the word exorcist or exorcism in the title that are not connected to this specific franchise i think it was this year the pope's exorcist it was a russell crowe movie right and then there's like the exorcism of emily rose right or something like that exactly It's kind of become like a horror subgenre. And it was only recently that I realized that this new movie is a continuation of this franchise and also specifically a direct sequel to this movie, The Exorcist. Apparently, they don't count the other sequels as like not canonical, but they're trying to do what they did with Halloween. It's the same director, David Gordon Green. And they're hoping to start a new franchise with a new trilogy of Exorcist movies. Although this new one didn't do super great at the box office. So maybe that's not going to happen. Or maybe it will do better overseas and they'll still do it. Or they'll still make the other movies for Peacock or something. TBD. But I think the, uh, the numbers on the movie were not what they were hoping. They were not Halloween numbers. The movie made $27 million in its opening weekend. Which is a lot less than the new Halloween and a lot of the other horror movies that have come out this year. Uh, maybe, but uh, first of all, the Halloween, that was a that was an outlier. Movies just don't make that much anymore. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is so popular and you've had younger people in other films. They've had a few more remakes, the Rob Zombie remakes. The Exorcist Believer is, uh, I think it's going to be considered a hit. 
These are just cheap to make. Well, no, this wasn't cheap to make because oh. they had to buy the rights for The Exorcist from Morgan Creek, who I think got them after the second or third movie. I forget all the details, but um, they paid $400 million for the rights to make The Exorcist movies. What? Yeah. They paid 10% of what Disney paid for all of Lucasfilm, Star Wars, and Indiana Jones? Yeah, Why I, I, would I you think pay so. That? Wow. Yeah. I mean, if you pay $400 million, you would hope to get $600 million back. Did people think that each film was going to make $200 million? They were going to make a you know trilogy of these? Yeah. Universal and Blumhouse shelled out $400 million for franchise. Deadline.com. I would hope... That this was a package deal. That they got The Exorcist, and they also got Candyman, and they got uh, 20 other little franchises. But if they paid uh, $400 million for that, I don't know whether they're insane or if that just shows that Disney got the deal of the millennium by paying $4 billion for Star Wars. I remember thinking at the time when Disney bought Lucasfilm for $4 billion, that's a steal. Even forgetting about the movies and the TV shows, just for the theme park rights alone, I was like, they're going to make that back... In a second. And you can make all the jokes you want about the Galactic Star Cruiser hotel that was a bomb and that they shuttered after a year or less than a year or whatever. They are making bank on all of those rides and the merchandise that they're selling in the parks. I got to believe they made that $4 billion back multiple times over already. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a steal. But I, I don't understand the business model of that. Even the Blumhouse business model, the whole point of it, yeah, once in a while they get a $75 million opening for uh, for Halloween, but more of their business model is make an $8 million film, have it make $26 million at the box office, repeat over and over. That That's what they do. I don't understand that deal at the surface. Fair. I, I mean, I think a lot of people were kind of confused by it, especially because the whole thing with Halloween, it worked out really, really well. But to your point, you got to kind of figure that that's going to be a hard thing to replicate. Yeah. And Halloween Kills, which was the uh, the sequel, that did not make that uh, nearly as much money as, as Halloween did. Right. Well, and then or it, Halloween Ends, I think. Uh, whatever, that was the third one. Th- whatever was the last one. Yeah. Whatever was the one that most recently came out, that did not uh, make nearly as much as that $75 million opening of uh, the one that, again, is a sort of sequel uh, but not a sequel. Yeah, you're right. It's sort of how the Terminator films right. are going, like, let's forget the bad films and, and this one too. There could be a sequels, I guess. Yeah, it's supposed to be a trilogy. But then it's supposed to be a trilogy that maybe it'll go to Peacock. And then is that going to boost Peacock subscriber numbers? I don't know. I agree with you that it's questionable. I'm just telling you what I read. I think they've also made prequels to this film before. There's a line in this movie, The Exorcist, where they talk about how Father Marin had done some other exorcism before and it was terrible and it nearly killed him and it was six weeks in Bolivia or some other country, I forget. And I remember thinking, right there, that's where you make the prequel, you tell that story. And apparently that was not just one movie, but two movies in the exorcist extended cinematic universe where they shot a movie that was that story and then 
halfway through production, they changed directors. And so then they released the movie, you know, their version of the movie. And then the original director released their director's cut, which had the same actor and the same kind of story, but went in a totally different direction. So it's two movies that came out like in consecutive years that kind of sort of tell the same story, but are very different. So there's been a lot of Exorcist stuff. But before we get into the original Exorcist, I did just the other night watch another Bloomhouse movie, talking about Bloomhouse and uh, their Exorcist remakes. Did you see M. Thregan? No. It's about like a very realistic doll who kills people. Wait, is the movie called Megan? Is that really what they refer to it as in the film? Or are you doing the Al thing? Well, maybe a little from column A, a little from column B. I will say this. I searched for the movie I don't know if it was on Prime Video or on Just Watch, the service where, you know, you look up to see where it's streaming. And I typed in Megan, M-E-G-A-N, and it gave me all of these other movies that were not this particular movie. When I typed in M3GIN, it popped right up. It was like, oh, that movie is on Prime Video. You know, that same thing happened recently when I watched uh, Seven, if you've ever seen that Brad Pitt, uh, Morgan Freeman film. It's technically S-E, the number seven, E-N. So if you type in S-E-V, I forgot which uh, streamer it was, but it didn't come up. And that's so stupid. Yeah, it is stupid. But since we've seen the movie, I have been referring to it as m 3 gin and I have been annoying everyone by doing the Al bit. da 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 Al. Uh, but okay, fine. We'll call it Megan. Did you see that movie? No, I didn't. I would recommend it as a very, very funny movie. I don't think it's particularly scary. I watched it with Courtney and our 10-year-old daughter. I was a little worried if it was going to be too scary. It's rated PG-13. I thought she could handle it. She thought it was not at all scary. She had no nightmares. She was like, I thought it was going to be a lot worse. Can I watch something scarier? Like, okay, hold on. We'll see about that. But it was pretty damn funny. I think if you take it as camp you can't take it seriously um we recently watched cocaine bear i feel like you said you saw that right no i didn't but is that the plot of of the film cocaine bear well yes but also more than that the tone of the movie is very tongue-in-cheek it doesn't take itself seriously it's a parody of itself kind of in a way where right out of the gate the movie lets you know this is a movie called cocaine bear and we're gonna have fun with it Similarly, M. Thregan, pretty much right out of the gate, they let you know, okay, killer doll movie, just come along for the ride. It's going to be silliness. I found it to be really, really funny, entertaining. If you're looking for a more recent horror movie this spooky season, I would recommend it. I won't spoil anything other than it's not brilliant in any way, but it made me laugh a bunch from what I know about Bloomhouse, and I'm not an expert, I think a lot of those movies are hard R, like hard horror, really scary kind of torture porn. At least that's what I picture in my head of those movies. M. Thregan was not that. Well, I just figure that they're all kind of called Annabelle. Isn't that what one of them is called, Annabelle? I think that's a, another scary doll, creepy doll. Yeah, exactly. Isn't, isn't Megan a doll? I yes. have no idea. Yeah, so those kind of films I'm not that into. I mean, Chucky, the, those things. I, I never found the, the creepy doll to be that interesting. 
Yeah, we should do Child's Play at some point. Our buddy Mike Kahn wanted to do it, and then he changed his mind. I wouldn't mind doing that. Uh, maybe for some future Halloween, we can do Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, Friday the 13th and Child's Play, just to like kind of knock out the classic killers of the 80s, I guess. Freddy, Jason, Chucky. I guess we could do that, yeah. You don't seem that into it. Um. Well, there's a, there's a bunch of other classic 80s killers that this didn't really escape the ages, like Pinhead. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple minor guys. Uh, the Phantasm. I think his name was The Tall Man. Remember that movie, Phantasm? There were like four or five of them. I have heard of it, yeah. I mean, th- these did not escape the 80s, really. I think Hellraiser just had a new uh, film, actually. It did, it did. And... um. You mentioned earlier when you were talking about the other movies that could have been in the package deal with Exorcist, uh, Candyland did just have a remake, so I don't think it was in that package deal. But Courtney was talking about Candyland, the original, and that she was kind of scared by it, and she liked that one when Candyman, sorry, not Candyland, um, but that that she was into Candyman, and she was like, oh, I remember liking that. Maybe we should watch Candyman. I'm like, okay. Um, there's plenty more we can do in the future, but let's get into The Exorcist. This is a classic seminal movie. It's about an actress named Chris, who's a single mother to 12-year-old Reagan. Reagan starts acting strangely and complains that her bed shakes. As Reagan's behavior becomes more disturbing, Chris puts her daughter through a series of invasive medical tests, but doctors can't find anything physically wrong with her. The director of Chris's movie is then found dead, and a police detective suspects foul play. Eventually, Chris turns to a priest, Father Karras, and asks him to perform an exorcism, as she now believes that Reagan is possessed by a demon. Karras is given permission to perform the ritual, but not alone. He is paired with Father Merrin, who has done exorcisms before. Will these two priests be able to drive the demon from young Reagan? So I don't need to ask you if this was a hit, not only because of the sequels and the franchise that has continued 50 years later. I know that this was one of those early 70s blockbusters that people were lining up to go and see. Oh, yeah. Uh, This film came out around Christmas, uh, December 26th, 1973. Uh, It was re-released in 2000. So together, uh, the movie and the re-release made $233 million domestically, $423 million worldwide. Um, Well, it made a lot of money when it was re-released, but when you account for inflation, apparently this is the uh, one of the highest grossing Warner Brothers films of all time. Right. Uh, I thought this was fascinating uh, when they asked uh, people in the test audiences, no one had ever heard of the word exorcism before or exorcist. It's not something you talk about. Right. And, and there's a great line in the movie when the Catholic Church used to do like thousands of these a year. Like, why don't you do them anymore? And Karis is like, well, because we found out about mental health and, right. you know, most of these things are not demons. It's just schizophrenia. And they did not release this in black theaters or predominantly black neighborhoods. And black people were apparently very into this film and had to travel far to, I guess, the white neighborhoods to see this. And I don't know everything about this, but I think the idea was black people want to see movies about black people. And apparently Wikipedia said that this, uh, the success of this film film in african-american audiences was something that helped the studios realize oh like let's just release films everywhere not just like in different ethnic neighborhoods and uh, i thought that was interesting yeah that's interesting and this movie was directed by william friedkin the late william friedkin who just uh died recently a couple months ago i forget exactly when this year 2023 
And I believe this is only the second movie of his that we've done on the podcast, the first being Sorcerer, the movie that we watched with our friends Matt Kroll and Shahir Dowd from the only podcast about movies. And I found that movie to be very slow, boring. It put me to sleep while I was watching it, literally. This movie starts very, very slow, and it starts in Iraq. There's a lot of symbolism as Father Marin is doing this excavation work, and he's finding these demons and these figures and these hidden things that are being excavated. And then it cuts to America, and we don't see Father Marin for another, I don't know, hour and a half plus in the movie, give or take. Don't quote me on the time. But it's an interesting prologue, and it pays off in the end. But I was just kind of thinking like, okay, where is this going? Is this just like William Friedkin really taking his time? And that's sort of kind of a staple of those 70s movies where you had a lot of these auteur directors, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, Martin Scorsese, where they were telling their story and they were going to take their goddamn time and you were just going to sit there and watch it. And it's not bad. I think it's actually interesting that they really actually filmed in Iraq. They didn't like, you know, shoot it in Arizona and pretend it was Iraq. And that was like kind of a difficult thing for them to do in the 70s. And William Friedkin apparently had to like give the the local Iraqis lessons on how to make movies and teach them how to do fake blood and stuff like that. That was part of the arrangement that he made. But I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that's really neat. I actually think the opening was pretty fascinating. I, I happen to be, uh, my degree in college is uh, in um, ancient Middle Eastern studies, so I love this stuff. And I even love the, the small details of watching an archaeological dig and how they were getting the, the small things of getting the dirt out. I thought that was great. I agree with you, though. I, I kind of, I don't want to do this. It's almost insulting to, to the movie to do it. But, uh, you know, looking at your watch or something, I had to look and I realized... It was 32 minutes into the film, and I'm like, nothing has happened yet. It was slow. Yes. But I don't think I, what, what you said, it was the auteur directors. I think it was just the way these movies were at the time. You know, 2001 starts really slow. I don't know if you've ever seen 2001. Yeah, of course. The primate scene, it's like 25 minutes or something. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like even Spielberg has evolved. Like it's not like that anymore. He yeah. gets right to the point. Uh, this film, it, it does take a little bit to get into it. Yes. The way that the movie is paced did kind of throw me in the beginning. And then again later, when after we spend some time meeting Father Karras and Chris and her daughter Reagan, and then all of a sudden there's a time jump that is completely unexplained where the last time we saw Father Karras's mother, she is in this institution or some terrible quality hospital and she's sick and she's dying. And then the next time we hear... It's that she died a long time ago. It's like, oh, okay, well, we didn't know that. And then in the first few scenes with Reagan, she's an adorable, precocious, sweet little girl, and she's living in D.C. with her mom while her mom's making this movie. And then all of a sudden, Reagan comes downstairs one night, and she pees on the carpet, and Chris says, oh, yeah, well, she's been sick for a while. The doctors don't know what's wrong with her. It's like, wait a second. She's been sick for a while? Like, when did this happen? You know, like, why did they skip all of that time in the middle of the movie with seemingly important developments? I guess it doesn't really matter, but, you know, like, they kind of get to the point 
quickly then when they didn't before. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know what gets me about the pace of this film? While it's realistic that they spend time thinking, well, obviously this girl has some kind of brain tumor or something, and that you would have to look for a medical reason why she's acting this way. And had they not gone the medical route, you and I definitely would have said, why didn't they at least go to a doctor for any of this? But they spend a lot of time on the medical point. Uh, And I almost feel like this is the 70s and maybe people were kind of fascinated by medical technology because apparently one of the scariest uh, scenes in the uh, test audiences and audiences when this came out was the angiography scene, which is a real thing. I mean, you could do angiography through the neck. Uh, often it's done through the leg. but um, Well, it's done through the leg now. I feel like I read that in the 70s, they did very commonly do it in the neck. Yes, and I'm saying you can do it. You can do these things in the neck too. And you will see squirts just like that. Uh, you know, the, the squirts come out like an arterial pulse, uh, basically the, the heartbeat. Um, there's some really weird device that I had no idea what they were doing. There was sort of like this robotic arm that kept moving around. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It was a really fascinating medical device. I don't know what it was, but it appeared to spit out what it looked to me like kind of like multiple x-ray images, which is kind of like what a CAT scan is, sort of. It seemed like um, they were showing off a lot of the high-tech stuff, and but it took a long time, in my opinion. See, it's interesting that you say that. I felt like the medical stuff, yes, was very disturbing, and it doesn't surprise me at all that audience members were fainting during those particular scenes. I like that they spend that time in the movie showing you that, because the movie's about an exorcism and it's about a demon and with all of the horrible things that happened to this little girl some of it and quite frankly a lot of it has nothing to do with the demon it's us it's the people it's the doctors and i'm not saying that as a as a criticism of the medical profession or anything or towards you as a doctor i'm just saying like that's what we do and i think there is real horror that is inflicted on this girl by People, And I think that's kind of the point, is that when we don't know what we're doing, we turn to science for the answers, and sometimes what that science does is pretty fucking horrific. I agree with you there. You know, we as the audience are watching a film called The Exorcist. We know it's not a tumor. I'm just saying I thought it was like... Can we get to the exorcism already? Realistically, absolutely. You got to exhaust this. And I like the fact that this was one of these, not a disbelieving priest, but the priest is like, we're not doing an exorcism because that's fucking stupid. I I wouldn't say it was a full like crisis of belief. Like he doesn't believe in anything, disillusioned God. But I like the fact that he doesn't go right to like, exorcisms uh so i like that he gets that journey there however i was just thinking like let's get to the exorcism part because it's called the exorcist i think that's fair and i can understand why that would make you a little antsy i'm imagining uh the simpsons with uh, itchy and scratchy and poochy when they keep seeing the signs for the fireworks factory just get to the fireworks factory and then they never get to the fireworks factory look i had never seen this movie before in my life But I knew certain things about it. I knew that the little girl vomits like the green pea soup. And I know that she levitates. And I know that her head spins all the way around. I knew all of that stuff was coming in this movie just because of pop culture and everything. And it's been referenced in so many things. But I kind of like the fact that before all of that happens, 
I get to know sweet little Reagan. She's adorable. She's so cute and so sweet and her mom loves her so much. And so when that stuff does happen to her, it's a lot more affecting. I feel worse about it. And when you see her go through these medical tests and the the blood go shooting out of her neck, it's absolutely fucking horrific. Also, kind of sidebar, when that procedure is being done, her mom is like in the next room watching, which I gotta (laughs) believe even in the 70s, they would not fucking allow because that's horrifying for a parent to watch that. As a father, that would just make me explode. Like, that's insane. That's I mean, I've been in operating rooms from the shittiest Brooklyn hospitals and uh, random rural hospitals to the fanciest Columbia, Cornell, and I have never seen a hospital that has one of these observation stadiums, the uh, you know, the bleachers. I feel like it's something that's probably at the Royal Academy of London. Like, these things exist, but I find the idea of an audience for a surgery hysterical because, one... I assume you have to have glass there because what are you going to be breathing and spitting on these people? Right. Uh, And two, you can't see anything from up there. As a medical student, I could barely see anything if I wasn't right up in the guts. You can't see anything from 20 feet above. I mean, it's so stupid. And yeah, I would not want the mother in this room. I used to not let parents in the room when I'm doing an IV because uh, it's terrifying for the parents to see. So it makes me nervous. Which makes me do a worse job if I'm nervous and I see a parent cringing by their kid uh, getting blood. And whether it was done in 1973 or not, I have no idea. But no way would that be done today. Right. When Eli was a baby, he needed an IV and Courtney and I were in the room watching and they couldn't find his vein. And we were both like physically ill. It was awful. So, yeah, like watching the blood come out of the neck. I totally get it. This is a very, very weird thing to bring up but did you ever see the movie the human centipede no but uh you know i i know of it right okay so in your mind what you're thinking is the most disgusting part of that movie isn't the most disgusting part of that movie i've watched that movie and we never have to do it on the podcast because why the fuck would we but the most terrifying most disturbing part of that movie It's not the thing that you're thinking of. It's when the bad guy has the woman held hostage and he's going to perform the the surgery on her, but it hasn't happened yet. And she comes to and she's going to run away and she gets up and runs off of the, the gurney and the IV is still attached to her arm. And when she gets up and runs away, the needle like rips a giant hole in her arm because it's still connected. She doesn't disconnect it. That is so fucking disturbing and disgusting. And seriously, that's the most gross thing in that movie. I don't know if it gave me nightmares, but that really, really unsettled me. So I do think that in a sci-fi movie, like a quote-unquote realistic medical thing can be really fucking disturbing. I've never seen The Human Centipede, but that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. There is no needle in an IV. There's a needle as you insert it. It doesn't work by keeping the needle in. It's a flimsy piece of plastic, so it couldn't do anything. Maybe, like, a little blood comes out from the hole that the vein was punctured, but it works for a movie purpose. Right. But all right, so let's get into the stuff that everyone knows from Exorcist, you know, the head spinning around and the vomiting and the bed levitating. 
I thought that these effects looked pretty cool. You know, vomiting, I guess that's not that hard to do. The bed spinning, her levitating was apparently harder than it looked in 1973. And these stunts caused real damage. I don't know if you if you saw that, but Linda Blair, who plays Reagan, and Ellen Burstyn, who plays her mom, Chris, they were both injured during the filming of this movie. Ellen Burstyn, when Reagan is supposed to kind of like, she kind of slaps her away, and then Chris kind of goes flying across the room. She really like broke her tailbone in real life when they were doing the bed levitating thing, and it was supposed to be shaking Linda Blair was in real life kind of thrown off the bed and she got really hurt. And a lot of crazy shit happened during the making of this movie to the point where people called the movie production itself cursed. And Friedkin was even considering bringing in a a real priest to do an exorcism of the movie set. And if you read a lot of this stuff, it does sound like there was a lot of bad luck and you can kind of understand why they would sort of create the story of the movie itself was cursed because that could help sell tickets, you think. Also, it kind of sounds like Friedkin himself was kind of just a jerk on set and he caused a lot of the problems himself. Possibly all those things are true, but if you read about the history of Hollywood, there's a film, we may or may not ever do this film, but uh, I think it's like 1982 or 83. There's a film called Twilight Zone, the movie. Yeah, yeah. There's a helicopter scene, like helicopter falls down. Not only did an actor, but children died. And uh, this film apparently had such lax safety protocols that it changed Hollywood forever. It doesn't surprise me at all that a film like this, which is a relatively tame film. I mean, you know, it's not like motorcycle stunts and stuff. Yeah, right. even this one, they're going to shake the bed and not even have like, you know, off where the parts of the camera you can't see, like mattresses in case you fall off the bed or or something like that. Or, or this bed is like extra soft. So, uh, you know, it totally doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And, and some of the problems with the production were... The refrigeration for the the bedroom because it had to be very cold and you could see her breath a lot in the movie and that's a that's a big part of the effect. But that the refrigeration system was this big, huge, expensive thing and it was breaking and then they had to spend time fixing it. And apparently Friedkin was such a control freak for one scene in the very beginning. Chris is like in the kitchen and she's talking to the cook and saying, hi, good morning. And the cook is making bacon. And apparently the bacon was frying too quickly for Friedkin's liking. So they needed to find preservative free bacon, which was not really a thing in 1973. And like that shut down production for like three days for this shot that's on screen for a fraction of a second. So there were problems that had nothing to do with demonic curses, just, you know, real life things that that forces movie to go way over budget and over schedule. And then when that happens, it's just kind of an easier sell to say, oh, well, did you hear it was cursed? That's just a better story than the director was kind of a dick. Also, uh, Friedkin and the writer of the movie had all of these fights back and forth. It was William Peter Blady who wrote the novel that The Exorcist was based on, and he adapted his own novel for the screen, which happens sometimes. It's not super common, but uh, they went back and forth and they hated each other and then they loved each other and then they hated each other. And I think they ultimately reconciled. And then when he, uh, Friedkin did a director's cut, he put some of the scenes that uh, that Blady wanted back in, that Blady was mad that he took out. He put him back in as a favor and then said, oh, actually, you know what? You were right all those years ago. 
But what did you think about like some of those effects of the, you know, the, the practical effects of, uh, of the possession? You know, what you said earlier, uh, I would say uh, exactly the same thing. I knew that the bed levitates. I knew that this woman spits out uh, vomit and I knew that her head spins. I was looking forward to all of those and I thought they all were done very well. Practical effects, when done well, are good. I mean, she has these yellow contact lenses and at the very end of the film, Father Karras, um, the way he kind of saves the he saves her in the end, the power of Christ compels you, blah, 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 that, that part. But then he says, take me instead. And I actually had to watch it like twice. I had to rewind it because it was a little quick for me. But on a second view, I totally understood. You see that Father Karras, he takes the demon in himself and then he sacrifices himself to kind of kill himself and uh, and get rid of the demon to save Reagan. Right. But the, the way you know he has the demon now, he has the evil eyes now. Right. And I thought that's very, I, I just missed it. I guess I blinked or something. I didn't miss that. But on second viewing, very simple. There you go. You didn't have to have any kind of lame, uh, you know, spirit leaving the body and entering him. I totally get it. Even the refrigeration thing, I was thinking very clever because that's a great effect. Like just, it reminded me of um, uh, The Sixth Sense, which was a very low budget, but a brilliant way to make it not scary, but eerie. Like you're suddenly breathing cold. That's interesting. Yes, I I agree with you that the effects work. Also, the demon kills two people, I think, right? It kills the uh, the director of the movie within the movie, and then it kills Marin. But both of those deaths happen off screen. We don't see either of them. And, you know, it's a quote-unquote horror movie. You usually see the deaths in the horror movie, but this movie doesn't show you them, and so... I think, you know, one, that kind of helps in terms of the effects, because then you don't have to worry about seeing cheesy effects. That's also like a big plot point is what happened to the director. And then there's a detective who's asking all these questions and, you know, is able to suss out that he went out of that window in Reagan's room. How did that happen? How did this little girl push a grown man out of the window? And that leads to uh, the discovery and everything. So it makes sense. But I was less surprised about that one. I was more surprised that we didn't see Father Marin die just because, I don't know, it seemed like that was an easy thing to show. Speaking of which, who do you think is the titular exorcist? Oh, is it Marin or is it Karras? Yeah. Um, I assume it was both of them. I assume this was kind of a mentor-mentee, like I was alluding to earlier. It's not a complete, the guy wasn't a total, I don't believe in anything priest, but he was not believing that there was going to be a demon in this girl. And Father Marin basically being like, no, dude, like, I've seen some shit. And yeah, it almost killed me the last time I tried doing it. And then through his teachings, he's able to believe and ultimately sacrifice himself. I didn't know it was from this film necessarily, but the whole, the power of Christ compels you, the power of Christ compels you. They say it like 20 times. Yeah, they do. And I think it's fair to say that the exorcism itself in this movie is fairly anticlimactic because a lot of it is them repeating over and over the power of Christ compels you. And it's just not really clear to me as a Jew who knows nothing about this Catholic stuff, how the exorcism is supposed to work. It seems like it's a lot of 
prayers and a lot of reading from the Bible to this demon. And I read something online today that apparently the way it really works is you have to find the one thing that will agitate the demon and then just repeat it over and over again. I guess in this movie, they thought it was the power of Christ compels you. It could be some other line or whatever. But that scene is a little bit dry. It's just these two dudes reading about Christ while the demon kind of rides around. And it's not that amazing. Maybe I'm biased because I, I'm not Catholic, but I did kind of find that to be a little lackluster. And to the movie's credit, the movie is not called The Exorcism. It's called The Exorcist. So it doesn't have to necessarily deliver on The Exorcism, but it still kind of does. I mean, based on what the movie is selling. And to the question of who is The Exorcist from the title, the movie poster is Marin. Like when he's coming out of the, the car, that great shot with the fog and he's under the streetlight, that's Marin. But again, Marin's really not in the movie too much. He's in that opening prologue. He shows up at the end. Karis gets a hell of a lot more screen time. And he is the one who ultimately defeats the demon. So maybe he's the exorcist. While it's satisfying that he sacrifices himself to save Reagan, I did kind of find the exorcism kind of eh. Well, not that it's eh. I find it interesting that the exorcism kind of doesn't itself work. Right. And what I also find interesting is that uh, I had to read this uh, online, but the demon, the demon's name, and I think they say it in like the sequels, or they may or may not say the name of it, it's a demon named Pazuzu. Uh And this is one of these like Babylonian Assyrian demons. Uh, or Sumeria, something like that. Yeah, so this is not like a Christian mythology evil demon. In, in the end, it's a sacrifice. And they just say, you know, go and me. Oh, now I'm possessed. Ha ha, I'm going to throw myself out of a window and kill myself. So now I'm going to kill both of us. And this is not necessarily Catholic. Like, anyone could have done this. If someone has that leap of faith, you, you could have made this a, a Muslim film. Uh, if you want to keep the religious aspect, it could be the same thing. It's just some evil demon. Fine. It doesn't matter where it's from. It's not about being a believer in God. It's about being a believer in uh, sacrifice. And I like that aspect of it, that it wound up not really being uh, like what you said there. Oh, they said the right Bible verse that's going to get it out. No, I don't think Pazuzu cares about the Bible because it's an Assyrian demon or whatever it's from. But Father Marin did do this other exorcism all those years ago and it nearly killed him and it took him six weeks. Well, how did he get rid of that demon? I know there's two other movies that will answer that question for me if I really care, which I kind of don't. But I just want to know how it normally works when when you don't have to sacrifice yourself. Because what Karis does is kind of reckless and not guaranteed to work. He only has like that one split second of control where he can fling himself out of the window because Pazuzu doesn't want to die, presumably. And, you know, it works out for the movie, but not a guarantee. Also, the whole Pazuzu thing is interesting because, yes, I did read that online too. In this movie, in The Exorcist, they never say the word Pazuzu. They show you the the statue. But when she's possessed, she says that she is the devil himself. She claims that she is the devil, which is confusing because is it Satan or is it Pazuzu? 
when Karis is talking about it and he's like, well, no one's going to believe that it's really the devil himself that's possessing her. People are, are going to have a hard time believing that she's possessed at all. But it's Satan himself. Come on. I think when you're thinking of Satan, if you're having the Dante's Inferno personification of Satan, you know, the, the brimstone on the tail and everything, I wouldn't necessarily take literally. I think it's just supposed to be a demon, a devil. Um, in the beginning, when Karis is like, no, this is just medical. No, this is nothing. He sprays holy water on uh, on Reagan, and she freaks out. Ah, it burns, it burns. And he's like, okay, okay. And then he goes downstairs to Reagan's mom and goes, yeah, this isn't a demon because this is just tap water. Right. I told her it was holy water. And I was wondering, did they explain like why that worked? No, they don't. I had that exact same thought, James. I'm glad you brought it up. I thought that it was interesting of like, okay, so is it a demon? Is it not a demon? And I was wondering if maybe the movie was going to maybe go in that direction where, yeah, we kind of told you it was an exorcist, but actually maybe it wasn't really a demon. And maybe there was an actual medical scientific explanation for it. But no, I mean, the movie does make it clear that she was possessed. The demon leaves her and goes into Karis and then the demon is defeated and there's the help me in her abdomen and all of this stuff that can't be explained by science. But so then, yeah, why did this the tap water have that reaction? I'm interested to know. Like, I'm not asking rhetorically. I'm like, huh, I, I, I want to know what the answer to your question is. And I don't know what it is. And I would love to know. And if anyone out there does know, please write us at Test of Time Pod and let us know. Yeah, I thought it was going to be something that reminded me of uh, the movie we reviewed, The Lost Boys. That's a vampire film. There's a part, I think they try to, like, use a water gun full of, like, garlic water or something. And then the vampires are like, fuck you, that doesn't really work. Or, like, I thought they were going to say something like that. Like, yeah, Holy War is bullshit. Like, I I am a demon, but fuck you. And almost like a scene, like, the devil would be like, I'll drink it myself. Fuck you, I don't care. But it's not, and, and they don't explain it. You really thought there might have been a, it really was a tumor in the end? No, 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 no. I I didn't really think that's where it was going. But when he said that line about the tap water, my ears kind of perked up and I was like, is there going to be like some kind of twist at the end? Oh, okay. All right. Because I was like, you do know she's going to turn her head 360 degrees at some right, point. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so I, I, I was really confused about where it was going. I wasn't actively working out the theory on like, you know, a, a Bolton board or anything like that. But- I thought uh, Linda Blair was fantastic in it. Apparently, um, she was nominated uh, for an Oscar for her performance. However, uh, most of the performance that people really love is the, let's say, the potty mouth uh, of Reagan, or rather the uh, demon in her, says uh, uh, potty words. But that's a different actress. And I actually thought that was uh, Linda Blair. And I was like, wow, she's like really a a voice actress, too, because that's that's really cool. She's doing the whole Batman, uh, Bruce Wayne, very, very different characters here. But it was a different woman. So even though you couldn't rescind the nomination, and Linda Blair, again, did a fine job actually acting, but... That got a lot of press, so she was assuming to not win. Right. When Linda Blair was hired for this job, she, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old girl, was saying a lot of really terrible, awful things. And they, they were like, oh, okay, I guess we can hire you for this job. I did notice, though, that a lot of the very disturbing things that Pazuzu, as Regan says, you don't see her say it. In other words, 
you hear it and you see like the back of her. We don't see her say those words, which kind of made me think, oh, I wonder if that was just because they didn't want to have this young child actor say these words, or maybe they thought for audiences, they didn't want audiences to think that this little girl actually said these words. Like when she's stabbing herself with the crucifix in her vagina, you know what's happening. And she says like, fuck me, Christ, or something. I forget exactly what she says, but you don't see her say it and you don't really see the cross, you know, it's it's not explicit. You You get what's happening, but I felt like it was shot in such a way where, okay, we don't need to feel bad for this little girl actor who is actually going through this stuff. I see what you mean. I don't think they gave it that much uh, thought. I think it's more uh, ADR. It must have been a very funny script that she must have just said, uh, like, 200 really, really vulgar things. Yeah. You cunt of this. Because they say cunt a lot in this film. And there are some parts where I feel like you do see Linda Blair's lips saying these uh, words. So... I think it's more that they just said a lot of things and then there were a lot of good angles and you don't necessarily need to see the girl saying it. Sure. And if the voice doesn't line up perfectly with her lips, then it looks like bad dubbing. So it's probably a lot more effective. I actually didn't notice what you're saying here that you can't see Linda Blair saying most of those things. So to me, it worked perfectly. Right. I just gave her credit for it. I actually didn't even know there was a voiceover actress until I read about it afterwards. So uh, I would have been with everyone else saying, okay, she deserves an Academy Award nomination. Right, right, right. Going back to the C word, I'm going to say it a couple of times too. So I guess trigger warning out there for anyone who hates the word. Pazuzu refers to Reagan as your cunting daughter with the ing at the end. I mean, is that a word? Is that a phrase? I've never heard it used like that, except for one other time. Did you see the movie from a few years back called Sisters with uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler? No. Okay. It came out... uh, right around the same time as Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. I remember that because Tina Fey hosted SNL. And she's like, if you see one movie this holiday season, see Star Wars, of course, see Star Wars. But if you see two movies, you should go see Sisters. Anyway, Diane Weist plays uh, the mom. Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are sisters. That's why the movie's called Sisters. And she's furious at them. And they're like, you don't curse at us. And she's like, oh yeah, I am cuntingly disappointed in both of you. She, like, turns it into an adverb. It's just so out of character for that character. It's also just Diane Weist. You don't expect her to ever say a word like that. And it's really goddamn funny. Um, So, yeah, just hearing it with the ING made me think of that movie. I have no idea if in Sisters that was a reference to The Exorcist or not. Um, Yeah, random. And I will stop talking about the C word now. Let me ask you, James, about the movie In total, do you think that 1973's The Exorcist stands the test of time? You know, I think in the way they make the film, I don't think it stands the test of time in that I think it's really slow. I think it's uh, kind of reminiscent of the way films were made back then. This film uh, drags on in the beginning. But once it picks up, uh, I actually think that the film is it's a lot different than what I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be much more religious. It doesn't require you to believe in Jesus you know, to, to appreciate this film in that regard. I liked it. I liked the performances. Um, 
it's it's slow but that doesn't make it a bad film it just makes it not a modern film i didn't say it doesn't stand the test of time i say it's not made the way modern films would would be made today but i did think it was an interesting film um i was a little bit underrated in that this is the exorcist and this is one of the greatest films of all time and also one of the scariest films of all time I wasn't scared in this film, and I did not think it's one of the greatest films of all time, nor do I think this should be one of, adjusted for inflation, one of the highest grossing Warner Brothers films of all time. But does this stand the test of time as a film? Yes, I think it does. It's it's very well acted, very well uh, directed and, and scored. I do think uh, not edited perfectly. And so if you can stomach 1970s films, um, you might be a little bored in the beginning and you could probably just start half an hour into the film. You wouldn't miss much. But um, uh, I do think the film stands the test of time. What about you, Al? What do you think of 1973's The Exorcist? It's interesting as we've, Watched these three movies in a row. I know what you did last summer, The Fly, and now The Exorcist. I don't know that any of the three scared me, you know, like really made me nervous, made me, you know, not want to turn off the light and walk upstairs to bed in the dark. Ooh, like none of these three movies are particularly scary, but I did find this movie really disturbing. Way more so than The Fly or I Know What You Did Last Summer. Maybe it's the whole as a father thing because it's about a parent who is powerless to help their child. And that's a really fucking scary thing in general. This feeling of hopelessness, like what are you supposed to do? And you're watching this horrible, horrible thing happen to your kid for no fucking reason. And you can't explain it and you can't fix it. I found this movie to be really affecting and just... um tough like tough to watch in a good way in the way that it's supposed to be it's a it's supposed to be a movie that is unsettling and disturbing and you know when there were all these reports in the 70s of people fainting in the movie theaters you know obviously no one wants a movie audience member to get hurt while watching their movie but you gotta kind of imagine that that was probably good for business that word of mouth is like really good oh no people are passing out in our movie that means it's really scary I mean, the one movie that I remember scaring me as a kid is Poltergeist, and maybe we'll do that on the podcast someday, but I honestly don't really want to because I think that might still actually scare me as an adult in my 40s. I don't think The Exorcist is scary in that way, but I think it's really fucked up, man, and I think that's the point. And I do sort of disagree with you. I mean, maybe splitting hairs a, a bit, but I do feel like this movie is very Catholic in its imagery and its representation of religion. And there are people who say that, well, this movie can reaffirm your faith. And this movie is sort of endorsed by some Christian groups where you might think, no, no, they would hate it because it's endorsing Satan. But then they look at it the other way of, no, no, in the end, the good guys win. You need God on your side. The devil is real and you need religion to get rid of the the demon. So I can kind of see it from, from that point of view. There's also, by the way, this whole like meta-feminist analysis of the movie. I don't know if you read anything about that where certain critics said that this movie is fucking bullshit because you have this single woman raising her daughter, 
yeah, but who saves the day? The men. The men have to come in and fix the problem. You can't have these single a single mom. Are you kidding me? Of course the devil's going to come and take her daughter. And then there is this other counterpoint that Pazuzu, the demon, is actually female. So then it makes it more feminist, which I don't really understand how demons have gender at all. So that was over my head. But any which way you slice it, this movie has been analyzed to death. It has had so many sequels just now, 50 years later. It's a record, by the way. Ellen Burstyn plays Chris in the new movie that just came out. And that is the record, the longest gap, 50 years of an actor playing the same character with like the longest break in between because Linda Blair showed up as um, Reagan, I think, in a couple of sequels or TV shows or something along the way. But for her, it's 50 years. That's interesting because uh, Jamie Lee Curtis had just uh, had that record as well because she played uh, uh, Halloween and then she got Halloween Ends. That was like 40 years, 45 years or so. Well, it was 40 years between Halloween and then the other Halloween, but she was also in Halloween H2O, which was the 20 years one. So, Oh, you're saying this is the longest between... The, the, the first and second time you yes. played. Yes. Yeah, oh, like, okay. the, Not the, the longest lo- you played a character. No, the longest gap. The, the longest gap. Uh, which I guess is like a very specific record. Anyway, this movie fucking does have legs. Not just because of the sequels, but the director's cuts and the re-releases. Like, this movie, The Exorcist, has been re-released and, and re-edited so many times. I, I think it's a given that it stands the test of time. Complete sidebar, not at all related to the movie Standing the Test of Time, although maybe a little. Max von Sydow, we didn't talk about him. He plays Marin. He is old man Max von Sydow. He looks not all that dissimilar from how he looks in Game of Thrones when he's the third eye raven. He's like 44 or something in this movie. He's like our fucking age, but they just made him look really old with prosthetics and makeup and everything. And when I first saw that it was him, I was kind of confused. I'm like, how is this movie 50 years old and he's still an old man? I knew that Max von Sydow was in this. And I actually thought in the beginning, I was like, that's funny how this guy that looks like only Max von Sydow. <laughs> and I assumed Karis was, I'm like, oh, that's what he looked like as a young man. Oh. I just assumed that was, I was kind of doing the math in my head. I was thinking, um... Uh, episode seven, because that's when he looks the most like regular looking. The very first scene of episode seven is Max von Sydow. Right. He's the old man that gets killed. And I was doing the math quickly in my head. I'm like, yeah, I guess that's like 40 something years. And maybe he's like, yeah, I guess he's the young Karis. He's like 30 something here. So I guess he's like uh, pushing his 80. But now I realize, yeah, that was the same guy. I was thinking the exact same thing as you. I was shocked. Yeah, it is very weird. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. That's going to do it for our trilogy of spooky movies from the 90s, 80s, and 70s. We hope you have found it to be spooktacular. I held that way too long. Um, But next week, we are going to do something that we like to do here in November, which is do movies that listeners have requested. We are going to start with The Freshman from 1990. It's a movie starring Matthew Broderick and Marlon Brando that Andrea Chasson, my aunt, has requested. So, and Andrea, we're going to do your pick, The Freshman, next week. I have never heard of this movie. I've never seen it. Have you seen it, James? I've never seen it, but uh, I remember of it. Okay. All right. 
Well, I'm looking forward to watching that movie and some other listener requests throughout November. And uh, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, X, Instagram, threads. You can uh, listen to us anywhere. Make sure you're subscribed to us wherever you listen to the show, even on YouTube. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.